Good morning. It's good to be in the house of the Lord. Amen. It is good to be here. It's good to be in a place that's friendly and open and that worships God, where his word is spoken and taught. Let's open with a word of prayer. Dear Lord, we thank you for this day, for this opportunity to grow closer to you, to learn, to gain wisdom from your word. Help us, Lord. Help us in our understanding. Help us in our patience. Help us in our outreach, Lord, that we would bring you glory and honor. Lord, commit your word to our hearts today that we would be able to understand it and use it wisely. We thank you for all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. My name's Tim Valentine. I think most of you know me. My wife, Karen, and I have been uh, missionaries at Kosovo, spent about five years there. We came back for the last time this past April. Um, Before I go much farther, I want to mention something so that I don't forget it. Last week, I spoke to the men for Advanced Sunday. And I don't know if the men shared with their wives and daughters um, what I had to say, but I spoke about a particular incident that had happened to me years ago where I was going in to get a cup of coffee and there were three drunks harassing the girl working behind the counter and she was in the store alone. And God laid it on my heart and it's just my personality. I had to stop that. I was going in there when I saw what was going on to to physically stop them, even though they were all a foot taller than me. Uh, I'm not going to go into all the details, but as I was approaching them, there was a man on my right who was crying, and he was contemplating suicide. And I didn't know that at first, and but he distracted me enough on the way to those three men that I turned and stopped and, and asked him if he was all right. And it ended up I spent two and a half hours calming him down and preaching the gospel to him. Uh, he did not commit suicide, and I know for at least the next two and a half years he had returned to the Lord and his life was somewhat stable. The part that I did not tell the men last week was that that girl behind the counter, this is the law of unintended consequences. That girl behind the counter gave her life to Christ. All she did was overhear what I was telling that man. Not only did she come to Christ, but her son and her daughter both came to Christ. If you don't think that the things you say and the things you do matter, let that be an example of how they do. Everything you say, everything you do, other people see. Some people are watching you to tear you down. Some are watching you to build you up and help you and and hold you. And others that we don't even recognize are watching and listening are affected by the things we say and do. So use your words wisely. Use your time wisely. Use the opportunities that God gives you to do what's right and honorable for God. I'd like to start and read a few verses this morning. If you've got your Bibles, I'm sorry I don't have anything for the screen. Uh, Proverbs chapter 3, and we're going to start at verse 11. We're actually going to touch on several other things today. And if you have not yet read these books, I encourage you, I greatly encourage you to spend the time in God's word because there are huge, huge, important messages and wisdom there for you as an individual. Don't ever think they're not there. You want to read the book of Job. It's a long book. It can be a depressing book at times. Read the book of Nehemiah. Read Exodus. 
You should read the whole thing. But read those three just so you'll have better understanding of about what, what you're going to hear today. So Proverbs chapter 3, verse 11. My son, despise not the chastening of the Lord, neither be weary of his correction. For whom the Lord loveth, he correcteth, even as a father, the son in whom he delighteth. Happy is the man that findeth wisdom and the man that getteth understanding. The message I'm about to deliver to you today may sound at times like a very depressing message, but I want you to know it's a message about hope, the, the hope that lies in Jesus. I want you to know it's about patience, and it's about seeking wisdom, God's wisdom specifically, not, not our own, not our neighbor's, God's wisdom. So Karen and I came back in April for the last time from Kosovo, and we'd been there and visited every year. We had tried to share what was going on with the ministry and how God was working there. And we wanted, we wanted everyone here certainly to hear and understand and pray for those believers in Kosovo. Uh, 95 to 98% Muslim still. Um, and yet at the same time, as Christians, we're allowed to move around freely and pretty much preach the gospel, maybe not on a street corner. And Karen and I had been called there uh, very clearly and directly. We had gone with a plan. And I would ask you this morning, what does God have planned for you as an individual? What does he have planned for you? I want you to ask yourself that question. What does God have planned for me? What is it, God, you have planned for me? Because you and I will be led by our own plans. We'll be trying to do specific things at specific times because we believe that that's God's plan and it, and it fits ours well. It's really our plan and very often we miss opportunities and people who God wants us to speak to. Unintended consequences. So Karen and I went. We had uh, ministries with teachers. We had ministries with youth. We got to work with and visit with the pastor and other pastors. Um, we helped in every way that we could. Each of us ended up kind of in a separate ministry, which was not our plan. Isn't that amazing? But God was using us as he had prepared us for his plan and his mission in Kosovo. Well, toward the end of 2018, maybe the middle of 2018, both of us came home one day. Now, now, there were a lot of ministries and things we were doing and people we were involved with. We both came home to the apartment. She'd been in the capital. I had been around town in Lipyan. We both came home, and we both had that kind of long, sad look. And we looked at each other, and if we could have both spoken at the same time, I think the words would have been in unison. I'm starting to feel like God doesn't need us here anymore. Maybe it's time to go home. That's, that's kind of a hard message to accept when you feel called to a place, you've been active in a place, you've seen things happening in a place. And we had in Kosovo. And we had felt very encouraged, but the, the previous six months, things had become stagnant, and we could see that, we could feel that. Um, we had tried to establish a ministry a couple of years before in a town called Fushkasov. Fushkasov is 20 to 40 minutes by car, depending on traffic. There were no ministries or outreaches in Fushkasov. 
I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to insert this here, and you have to remember this for a little later on when I'm speaking. In Fushkasov lives a pastor of one of the churches from Pristina. It's one of the largest churches in Kosovo. It's been there a long time. And I had actually, while investigating, trying to start a ministry there, had tried to find out, is there any ministry? Is there anyone there? Are there any Christians there? And there were really... Everybody's response was the same. No, 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 there's no believers there. There's nobody there. Well, in reality, the pastor of this church lived in Fushkasov. And I had been there. I'd had coffee with people. And finally, after finding this out and not really getting anywhere, I went to his church. And I visited him, and I asked him very directly, is there any ministry? Is your church doing any ministry in Fushkasov? And he said, no. And I said, well, why not? Oh, there's, there's no opportunities there. There's no believers there. It's just we can't. There's, nothing's going to happen in Fuskasov. I said, but God has sent me, and I, and I really believe we can do. No, absolutely not. Our church will not back any of the ministries or the things you're talking No, it is not time. We're not doing anything in Fuskasov, which was a little disappointing to me. But Karen and I kept praying, and we kept working on that, trying to figure out, because God had laid it on our hearts. He needed a ministry there. And we had come in contact with a couple, the woman I knew of the couple from the first visit I made in Kosovo. I had a close connection with her because she had been my translator to the first person that I had introduced to Christ when I went to Kosovo, whose wife and hoping his children had come to know Jesus. They were devout Muslims. So I had a connection to her. And she's now married. Her husband's name is Ervis. Her name was Ganya. And so we had met them, had had lunch and a few meals, and we're talking about establishing uh, a cafe. That was his dream for Fushkasov to share the gospel. And I didn't really have a dream. I just wanted an outreach. And our church had really been pushing for a bookstore because they had been successful in a couple other cities of sharing the gospel. So that was their vision. That was my vision. And that was Ervis and Ganya's vision. But it wasn't going anywhere. After roughly two years of trying, nothing ever really came to fruition. Nothing really happened. So Karen and I were getting a little discouraged about that. And we had prayed, and we, at this point, had felt like God was saying, it's time for you to go home. You're not needed in Kosovo. It's not that we couldn't be useful. It's just the call wasn't what it was before. And that was very clear to us. So Karen and I are continuing to pray, and we're wondering, you know, what part of our life is this? Where, where do we go with this? Do, do we stay? Should we be patient? And we were seeking God's wisdom. Now I want to take you back to God's word a little bit. I want you to think about Moses. I want you to think about the book of Exodus. I want you to recognize that Moses had three distinct parts in his life, and they were each 40 years long. Moses, born, raised into a place as a prince, well-educated, well off. I mean, whatever he wanted, I'm quite sure he could have had easily. In fact, to the point where I'm sure, without trying, he was probably just a little arrogant. And in a moment of anger and impatience, he killed a slave driver. And that was the turning point. At 40 years old, he went from being a prince with everything on a silver plate to being out in the desert, learning how to survive he ended up spending 40 years in that desert. He learned how to live, how to be, I would say, a real person. He learned, I'm sure, about patience. And then after 40 years, 
God called him back because after that 40 years, he was finally prepared for the plan that God had laid out for him. And he brought him back, and for the last 40 years, God used Moses to lead his people to freedom and to be a nation ruled by God. It took 120 years to complete that mission. But God had a plan, and it was in three stages, and he was preparing Moses for that plan. I want you now to think of Nehemiah. Nehemiah was a wine taster for the king. Isn't that a great job? You get to rub shoulders with the king. You're there every day. You're there every meal. Oh, maybe, depending on who wants to poison the king. I'm not sure I'd want that job. But that's what Nehemiah was. And in the very beginning of the book of Nehemiah, Hanani and his brethren came and were visiting and spoke to Nehemiah. And they told Nehemiah that Jerusalem was in shambles, that the walls were down, that the gates had been burned, that the remnant, the remnant from the captivity were in grave danger. And it broke Nehemiah's heart. And the first thing Nehemiah did was he wept and he prayed. He took it to God. He was broken inside because of what his people were suffering. And he began to pray to God for them on their behalf. And what should he do? He sought God's wisdom and he prayed. When we see, seek God's wisdom, how long do we pray? When we seek God's help, how long do we devote ourselves to asking him for direction, for wisdom, for help? Is it, is it a five-minute prayer? Is it ten minutes? Is an hour enough? Maybe we will remember and go to the Lord for three days in a row. How long do you think Nehemiah went to the Lord before he acted? Try four months. Can you imagine having something laid on your heart and it touched you so deeply that you devoted four months of going before the Lord to pray for direction and wisdom? That's what Nehemiah did before he went and spoke to the king. And in the end, the king gave him everything he needed, safe passage, materials, an armed guard, to go back and help Nehemiah's people. God had a plan for Nehemiah. Now I want you to think of Job. Here was Job at the time, probably one of the richest men in the world. He had a big family. He had seven sons, three daughters. He had a wife. And he was wealthy, very wealthy. He had cattle, camels, sheep. What could go wrong with that life? A lot. One day, the first messenger, the first servant, came to him to tell him. The Sabaeans have fallen upon the oxen and the donkeys and the servants, and they've stolen the oxen and the donkeys, and they've slayed all the servants with the edge of the sword except me, and I alone have survived and come to tell thee. Now that was, I don't know, maybe a third of his wealth. And as that servant was yet speaking, another servant broke in. And he said, Job, Job, I, I, I'm sorry, but fire has fallen from heaven and has burned up all the, all the sheep and all the servants except me, and I alone have escaped to come tell thee. And as that servant was finishing his speaking, a third one arrived. And he said, Job, 
Job, horrible news. The Chaldeans fell upon us, and they've seized all the camels, and they've slaved, slain all the servants except me, and I alone have escaped to come tell thee. Now, here's a man who, for all intents and purposes, just lost all his wealth. I don't know how many hundreds of servants were killed. What a horrible thing to happen. And as that third one is delivering this message, the fourth arrives. Now, you have to understand, Job was a good man. It says in verse 1 and verse 8 in chapter 1, he was a perfect and upright man. He eschewed evil. Eschewed doesn't just mean hate. It means he very intentionally avoided it or anything to do with evil. He was a good man. When God's word says, you're a good man, I got to believe it. He was such a good man and so devoted to his family and to God that he would offer burnt offerings to God in case when his sons and daughters were together and feasting, in case they had sinned in their hearts and cursed God. He wanted them covered. Job was a devoted, good man. So as he's hearing this news about all his wealth being gone, the fourth servant arrives, and he comes in and he says, Job, Job, the four corners of the house blew down on your sons and daughters, and they were all killed, and all the servants, except for me, who survived to come deliver the news, the message to you. So now Job has lost all his wealth. He's lost all his children. How much does it take to break a man? Even with all this, he still didn't sin. He still didn't turn against God, but he was a broken man. That's the message or the modern version of it that I'm going to deliver to you in a few minutes about a man who suffered greatly and how he reacted. How do we react when we suffer? How do we seek wisdom momentarily, a flash in the pan, a desperation scream or yell, and that's it. We need to be seeking God's counsel and wisdom all the time. So poor Job, here he is. He's lost his wealth. He's lost his children. I mean, what else could go wrong? What else could possibly happen to Job? He loses his health. Have you ever had a boil? Just one or two? I got them, you know, saddle sores, riding horses. I can tell you, you have a boil, it's painful. It's painful to touch. It's painful to rub. Job was covered over his entire body with boils, from the soles of his feet to the top of his head. I can't imagine the physical agony that Job was in. And still, he did not curse God. What could possibly happen? What's left? I mean, he's lost his wealth. He's lost his sons. He's lost his health, and then his wife comes to him, and his wife tells him, curse God and die. Can it get any worse than that? I don't think so. But the man I'm going to tell you about lived about as close to that as anybody else I know. In the end, and I forgot this in the first service, in the end, Job was restored. Chapter 42, verse 10 says, And when he prayed for his friends, he was restored 
with twice what he originally had. Now, I can't promise you that if you suffer, you're going to be restored at all. Certainly not that you're going to have twice what you had to start with. Because God has a plan for you, not me. It's not because of our hopes and desires that God does things. He does them because they're his plan. And sometimes it's not pleasant or easy for us. So this man, his name is Lorim. And Karen and I, in 2018, we made the decision that we would go home for our visit, that we would take the time to seek God's counsel and wisdom to determine if we were to stay in Kosovo and if so, what we were supposed to do. So we came home, we prayed about it for months, and we both felt God wants us to return to the U.S. Your mission over there is complete for now. They don't need you. Sounds kind of harsh, but that's kind of how we both felt. So we determined to go back in April to spend two weeks there to wrap things up and come back to the States. And we saw a council of pastors, missionaries, organizations, and all of them told us the same thing. You cannot close up shop in two weeks and return to the U.S. Well, it's impossible. It takes two months, three months. You have to see all the people that you have made relationships with. You have to visit all the churches. You have to take care of all the business. You have to take care of the government stuff. It can't be done in less than two months. We decided we were going for two weeks. And I told them, I said, we're going for two weeks. God has led us to the point where we know we're returning home. We're going there with the idea we're returning in two weeks, completely done, everything closed up. And the bottom line is, if God wants us back in the U.S., he's going to do it in two weeks. So we went in April. We got our first real wake-up call on that first Sunday. We arrived on a Wednesday. Thursday morning, I got up to wrap things up. My ID card was expired. You can't do any business with anybody without an ID card. Our car registration was expired, so we couldn't drive. Our insurance was expired, so we needed insurance to get the car registered. Um, the battery was dead. The car was parked in an apartment building in the basement all the way in the corner, which meant other cars had to be owners found, cars moved out of the way. My car, because the battery was completely dead, had to be pushed out. So Thursday morning, that's what I got up to, running around like a chicken with my head cut off. And right away, God put the people right there to get my car out, to move their cars, to move their stuff, to help me push the car out, to jumpstart the car. The car seemed to be running and working. Now I have to go register it, have to get an ID card first, which means we have to drive to the Capitol. That's okay, I'll go get a battery. I went to get a battery. The battery place was out of business, so I couldn't get a battery. I drove back to Lipion. I parked the car, and I turned it off. So I was stuck until Friday. So Friday morning, got up again early, found a different person who came and helped me start the car, got the car running. Okay, man, we're on high screech. I found a place to buy a battery, ended up building a relationship with the guy who sells batteries in five minutes. Praise God. Got battery in the car, picked up Karen, drove to the immigration for ID cards because can't do anything without ID. I'm in an unregistered, uninsured car in a foreign country. That's not a good plan. But I made it all the way there. I didn't get stopped. They have roadblocks every two miles, checking ID, checking registrations. None for us. So we get there, and there's a line of 30 or so people in front of us in immigration. Now, every year we had to go there and renew our ID cards. We had to go through a huge process. 
And all the other missionaries always cried and complained about having to go to immigration for ID cards. It took me months. They hated me. They made me come back. They lost my paperwork. We heard it all. Every single time we went to immigration, God's hand was on us and opening the doors. We got things done in minutes that took people days. We got ID cards in two weeks most of the time. No hassles, no problems. I ended up building a relationship with actually a couple of the people who worked in the office and one lady in particular who I gave Bible verses. She's a Muslim. The entire office is Muslim. Gave Bible verses to which they hang on the wall in the office. Praise God. So we arrive and 30 people, man, that could be hours. It could be to the end of the day. So we get in the back of the line and I look and over the heads of all the people, I see the security guard who speaks no English, but we've always been nice and friendly to, and he's on his tiptoes. And he comes through the crowd and he grabs Karen and I and he takes us all the way to the front of the line. And I'm like, oh God, oh God, please don't do this. I mean, I'm there to be a good example, not to cut in line, not to look for favors. Come on. No, nope, no, nope, come. And he was physically pulling me. And he takes us to the front of the line, and then he, wait, wait. And he goes and he gets two chairs for us to sit in. <laughs> Nobody else has chairs. So there we sit, and we're both, I mean, at this point, we're embarrassed, and at the same time, we're thankful. Because to complete this in two weeks means everything has to work like that. So we sat down three, four minutes, and the first open person, he stopped the next one in line and took us up to her. Oh, my gosh. She spoke no English. Now, I'm fair with Albanian, but I hadn't been there in a while. Our ID cards were expired. The process can take a month or longer. Not only did she take our information and everything, but got our ID cards, gave them to us, and processed us right then. God wanted us to come home. Sometimes that's a little hard to swallow, but at the same time, it's so cool to see God work. When God has a plan, you can't stop it. You may take a sidetrack or two. If necessary, he'll slap you right back in line. Now, God was clearly speaking to us. We left there, got insurance, got the car registered. I had to sell the car, which means advertising it. Trying to, I, I have no idea where to start. The car was sold within the two-week period. The money was given to us cash taken care of. We were able to deal with the tax authority, with the accountants, back to the tax authority, with the bank, gave up our ID cards, closed our accounts in the bank, and then needed to go back to the bank. And, and by the rules, they're not allowed to talk to us without ID cards. So they weren't going to help us whatsoever. So the two of us are like, well, this isn't very good. The woman comes from the back, says, oh, it's all right. Take care of them. Took care of everything, handled everything for us. All in one day. I mean, Totally blown away. Clearly, God was telling us it's time to return. So, make it to Sunday. Sunday morning, we appear at church. Nobody in the church knows. We're telling them this is our last, our last day in church. Or maybe one more Sunday, and we're returning to the U.S. So we go in, and usually, like here, we sit fairly close to the front and kind of sat about the same spot, and the pastor sees us, oh, my gosh, and he's telling everyone, and people are applauding and hugging, and this is marvelous. You guys have come back. We've been waiting and praying for you and your return. And I didn't have the heart to tell anybody at the time. So the service starts, and from the pulpit, Tim, Tim, come up and say a few words. 
I can't. I can't. Because I'm heartbroken. They're not just people. They're my friends. They're my family. And they don't even know what I'm about to tell them. So I wouldn't go up. And the service started, and they got moving along a little bit. And now imagine this. Like this morning, right now I'm in the middle of speaking, and somebody in the third row from the back goes, I want to talk. What? (laughs) Excuse me? That's what happened. A guy in the third row from the back in the church raised his hand. Yeah, I need to come up. I need to speak. And the pastor kind of hesitated and said, okay, really? (laughs) So up to the front he goes. And on his way up, he picks up three young men in their 20s. He says, come on, come on, you're coming with me. Thinking, oh my goodness, what is, what's happened to this church? What's been going on for a year? And he goes up front and he introduces the three of them and he said, we need to pray over these three men because all three of them just gave their lives to Christ in a cafe in Fushkasov. Oh my gosh. For Karen and I, that was like, could have knocked me over with a finger. We didn't hear much of their testimony other than somebody shared the gospel with them and they gave their lives to Christ. But these were three devout Muslim young men publicly, almost immediately after their conversion, making this public statement of faith. And this guy had introduced them, this, to me, total stranger, tall, thin man over six feet. His name was Lurim. So after the service, I sought Lurim out to find out a little bit about it. I found out, unfortunately, he speaks no English whatsoever which made it difficult, but I heard his story and his testimony. And that's what I'm going to share now. Lorim was born in 1991 or 92 in Kosovo. He's a Kosovar Albanian, Muslim, Muslim because they're all Muslim. And during the war, he was moved to Sweden. And I'm not 100% sure, but I believe his family was killed or died. So he was in Sweden as a child alone. I don't know who raised him. But he grew up in Sweden, and as many uh, Albanian, Albanian Kosovars do, they're married very young, and that's considered the norm. So he was born 91, 92, moved to Sweden, grew up, found a girl who happened to be also a Kosovar, an Albanian Kosovar, fell in love, married her. They had three children. Those three children, when the oldest got to be four or five years old, His home life was good. He had a good job. He had a wife. He had a happy family. They had a nice apartment. They were making lots of money. And everything was beautiful. And one day there was a knock at the door, and it was the police. And they were there to arrest him. Because they had taken and examined his children based on a complaint, and the children were covered with bruises and had been physically assaulted, abused, and molested. And the complainant was his wife. He was taken to jail, to court, found guilty, and sentenced to seven years in prison. He went to prison. He served the entire seven years in a Swedish prison. During that time, he was allowed no contact with his wife or his children whatsoever. Sometime in the end of that seven years, his wife and his kids moved back to Kosovo. He gets out of prison in Sweden, 
He's trying to find a job, can't get a job, can't really get anything done. And he's desperate to contact his children, who he hasn't had any contact with in seven years. He finally approaches his father-in-law and pleads with his father-in-law. And his father-in-law finally arranges a couple phone calls, time to talk to them, and communicate. And I believe that he had one communication with them. And then there was a knock on the door. And they came and arrested him again. And this time they deported him to Kosovo. You're now a repeat offender. You've spent seven years in prison for child molestation. Now, I I don't know what the prisons look like in Sweden. I, I know what they look like in the U.S. And I know what they look like in Kosovo. And I really don't think it was very pleasant for him because I can tell you here in the U.S., it's pretty uniform, I think, around the world. If you're a child abuser and molester, you are going to be beat by the guards and you're going to be beat by the other prisoners. He was there for seven years. He finally gets out. He's no sooner out than he's rearrested, deported to Kosovo, where they immediately throw him in jail. They brought him in cuffs. They put him in jail. It was known that he was a child molester, and he was beaten and abused for 27 days in a Kosovo prison. If you want to think of a place that is dirty, horrible, ugly, and every guard there is mean and nasty, that's Kosovo where you eat the food, and if you can gag it down, you get sick from it. So for 27 days, he's in jail in Kosovo. During that 27 days, there was one cop in Kosovo who decided maybe he should investigate this, and he did. And he started to to chase trails, and he found out that years before, the mother-in-law had filed the same type of complaint against the father-in-law. And so he did some more digging. He contacted the Swedish police who investigated and then eventually called in this guy, Lorim's wife, and as I was told, very intensely interrogated her to the point where she finally broke down and told the truth. He had never molested those kids. He had been completely, absolutely, falsely accused falsely convicted, and sentenced to seven years in prison. And upon getting out, was sent right back. She was arrested, the mother-in-law was arrested, and he was freed after being beaten for 27 days. When he came out of prison, he could hardly stand up, much less walk. He was physically sick, could not keep food down. He had no money, no friends, no job, no connections in Kosovo. So the Kosovo police said, if you'd like, we'll buy you a plane ticket back to Sweden. And he said, no, I'm not going. This is my country. I'm staying here. Okay, good luck. Boom. And out he goes. Where do you go? He tried Muslims. Nobody would even talk to him. So he began to seek a Christian church because he had heard that the Christian church is the God who saves He made it to the capital city of Pristina, and he started to look for a church. And he asked somebody, and they actually told him, yeah, there's this place, the BPZ Church. It's And they gave him directions. It's on a main road, and almost at the corner, and there's a side street from here to the sound booth. That's how far up the street the church is. It's a brand-new building, big sign. You can't miss it. I mean, you can't miss it. 
It's a Christian church with crosses. There it is. And he went up and down that street for two days and could not find the church. He couldn't get anyone to talk to him and help him. He couldn't get any food or drink. He got nothing. And after two days of searching and literally being this far from the church, he gave up. And he sat down on the curb, kind of in front of the church, and said, somebody, somebody help me. And somebody stopped, and they said, what are you looking for? I'm looking for the Christian church. Now, here they are. You could see the church. (laughs) And the guy says, I know where there's a Christian church. Okay, where? At Germia Park. That's the church Karen and I were at. You go toward Germia, and right at the entrance is a Christian church. Okay, how far is it? It's about two miles uphill. On the second day, he arrived in front of the church. He goes up, and he can see the gate to Germia, 100 yards or so away. He's standing in front of three houses on the left side of the road in. The three houses are all the same. They look like they were airdropped from Saudi Arabia. They've got all the Arabian architecture. They've got gold gates, gold trim, gold statues, and that's where he's standing. And he's there, and, and again, He hasn't eaten. He hasn't had anything to drink. He's physically broken. He's physically sick. He has broken bones. And he said, I look around, and I don't see a church. Why? Why has man done this to me again? All I want is to find the church where the God who saves is. He said, as I'm looking at the three houses, And I look back, I look across the road, and I realize there's a woman standing there. Now, in Kosovo, culturally, out in public, on the street, a woman would never speak to a man she didn't know, either as a relative or know well. It's completely culturally absolutely wrong. And the only time a man would speak to a woman would be if she was a fallen woman looking for money, and he was trying to spend some. He said, I looked, and I, and I saw this woman across the street, and, and I kind of looked away, and I looked back and realized she was gorgeous. She was a beautiful woman, the most beautiful woman I have ever seen in my life. She had long blonde hair and almost radiated and glowed. She was beautiful. Her clothes were beautiful. Her face was beautiful, and he kept repeating, the most beautiful woman I've ever seen. And she she seemed to be looking at me, and she was talking. And I thought, that's impossible. I'm broken. I'm filthy. I stink. He said, and I, and I turned away, and I looked, and I thought, somebody must be inside the gate talking to her. And there was no one. It was just me. And I looked back, and she was she was talking, and her hand was up, and she was waving. And and he said, "What me?" And she said, "Yes, yes. Can I can I help you? Come, come here." And she called me across the street, and I didn't I I didn't know what to do. And she kept saying, "Come, come." So I, I made my way across the street, and when I got there, she was she was beautiful, and she she looked at me and she said, "What do you want? What do you need? Can I help you?" And he said, "I'm looking for the Christian church." I was told it's out here. I'm looking for the God who saves. And she said, I know where that church is. I go there 
all the time. I'm there for every service. It's a good church. It's right up there. And behind her, up the hill, about 200 yards, is our church. It's got a 30-foot-tall cross on the front of the building. She said, come, I'll take you. And so the two of them made their way up the hill to the church. And she took him inside the gates and took him to the front door. And then she turned and walked away. And he knocked on the door and went in. And Pastor Femi just happened to be there that day at that time. And Femi took him in and helped him. They kept him at the church. Over time, they fed him. They got him a doctor. They got his health back as much as they they could at the time. After two weeks, he started attending services in the church. Now, this is where I've had the story. I've actually had the whole story now from both people, him and Femi. And Femi told me, he said, when this man came to the door, he had broken bones, he was physically sick, and there was still vomit dried in his clothes. That gives you an idea of what this guy looks like. He weighed 120 pounds. He's over six feet tall. So the church found him a doctor. They did the best they could to heal him, body and soul. And after two weeks, he started attending all of the services in the church. He was there for every prayer meeting. He was there for every service. And he started studying God's word. Femi said that first day when he arrived in the church is when he gave his life to Christ. Right there, the God who saves No one in the church before or since has ever seen that woman. They walk among us. So after a month, he's finally able to get up and walk around and function, and the church finds him an apartment in Fushkasov, and they find him a job with a taxi company. And he starts working driving for the taxis, And the average earnings are 20 euro per day for a driver. That's how much money he'll actually take in. Within a matter of days, Lorim is taking in 80 to 90 euro a day driving a taxi. After a month, the boss comes to him and he says, what are you doing? What's going on? These guys earn 20 euro a day. You're earning 80, 90 euro. What, What do you do different? What are you doing? And he said, well, I treat people right and I share my testimony. Praise God. What a ministry. So after a while, he earns enough money. He pays back the church all the rent and money they spent to take care of him. Then he goes back to the church. After his debt is paid, he goes to the elders in the church. Even though he's living 20 to 40 minutes away by car, he's there for every service and every Bible study. The deacons, the church body, all say the same thing. This is a changed man. This is a man possessed by God. He goes back to the church and he says, God's laid it on my heart. We need a ministry in Fushkasov. You remember Fushkasov? That's where the pastor wouldn't start a ministry. So Lorim says, God's laid it on my heart. We need to have a ministry there and it needs to be a cafe. Church deacons, no way. Our plan is to have a bookstore because bookstores work. So if you want to open a bookstore, we'll back you. And he says, absolutely not. God's laid it on my heart. We need a cafe because in a cafe, they'll come to drink coffee and they'll hear the gospel and they'll come to know Christ. The church agrees and they agree to help him get started. He said, I have got enough money to pay the rent 
400 euro a month and pay my help, but I don't have enough money for equipment and furniture. Well, okay, I'm not sure we can help, but we'll try. Now, this is a church that only has 100, 120 people come in it. It's in a place where the average earning is 300 euro a month, and they barely scrape by. And he says, I need 10,000 euro. And they look at each other and they say, okay. And they loan him 10,000 euro to open this cafe. Within, within, it was less than a year, I think it was about nine months, he had paid back the entire 10,000 euro. He had led numerous people to Christ. People were coming in weekly, hearing the gospel, giving their lives to Christ, and popping up a church in Pristina, the capital. He comes back to the church and he says, this is awesome, you guys helped me, I've paid the money back, but I have a vision God's laid it on my heart. Wow. What is it? We need a ministry in Lipyon. That's where Karen and I were working, and for two years it had been flat. As hard as we tried, we couldn't make it happen. He said, I have a vision, and the vision is we open a cafe in Lipyon. <laughs> and they said, no way. Tim and Karen are there. Tim and Karen, you can work with them. We'll help support you if you open a bookstore. And he said, no way. God has laid this on my heart. Clearly it works. So now I'm talking with Femi, and I've got to skip because I'm out of time. I'm talking with Femi on the last day when we're coming home. And everyone knows now that we're leaving. And Femi says, you know, you've broken my heart because the church was counting on you guys being here to open this bookstore, and now Lorene could come alongside you. And I laughed at him. I said, who are you kidding? This is God speaking so clearly. It's time for Karen and I to go home. Lorene will open the cafe in Lipion. Praise God. So that's what's in the works. To give you an idea, in 2018, when we came home, in the fall of 2018, there were 35 evangelical churches in Kosovo. 3,500 believers. In that less than a year time frame, when we went back in April, there were 46 evangelical churches and over 4,600 believers in Kosovo. Praise God. Don't ever think you are indispensable to God. You are not. But God has a plan for you. Your job is to do and follow that plan according to his will. How do you find his will? You go to him in prayer. You look in his word, and you're patient. You seek it earnestly. You ask for his wisdom. We're going to leave here today, and we're going to go out in a world that hates us. If you don't think that's true, man, you better take a harder look. They hate us. I had coffee with a friend on Friday. We sat outside a cafe, talked for a while. We were getting ready to leave, and I said, please, let me pray before we leave. Something I learned from Femi, as he sat, surrounded by hundreds of Muslims and prayed openly in their native tongue to the God and Jesus who saves. So when I go somewhere now, I'm not afraid to pray. Well, we sat outside that cafe and I bowed my head to pray and there was a woman sitting right behind me. She had no cell phone. She was sipping her coffee. And I think I got one, maybe two sentences into the prayer. Thank you, Jesus, for what you've done. And with that, she said, oh, my gosh, jumped up and slammed the chair into the table. What's that tell you? It tells me we've got a long way to go. 
but we need to stand firm in our faith and stand firm for Christ here in America. So as you leave here today, I challenge you, ask God what's his plan for you. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your word, for your son, for your spirit. Give us inspiration, direction, understanding. Lord, help us to glorify you each and every day. Help us to be bold in our proclamation that the world may know Jesus Christ is Lord. Thank you again. Bless this day and the days ahead that we would serve you well. Amen. Amen.